and welcome to episode 461 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from BaseballProspectus.com, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Sam Miller with Ben Lindbergh. How are you, Ben? All right. Prepared for another week of podcasting. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I just didn't have anything else to say. Yeah. So, uh, 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 okay. So, do you have anything that you want to start with? Um, not a whole lot. I I suppose we could do updates of a couple of the things that we keep track of that only we care about. But well, um, let me let me start. yeah let me go let ahead. Me, I have a few things. So okay. uh, we we talked about the um, we we had a three o three swinging mm. on three o. Uh, mm-hmm. We had a couple weeks where that was a thing. Yep, and I wrote about how it's um, it's not clear to me whether swinging on three O is a stat head thing to do or a not stat head thing to do because there doesn't seem to be a uh, consensus uh, among teams among sort of stat head teams and non stat head teams about which one they do and it's all over the board and it's interesting to me that a strategy hasn't developed uh, that's clear one way or the other anyway. Uh, in this piece, I wrote about how the uh, the A's um, used to used to almost never swing on 3-0, and David Forrest was quoted in 2008 or something like that saying that if if his guys swung three or four times all year on 3-0, it was a big deal, and uh, Josh Donaldson was talking about how even if you hit a home run on 3-0, Billy would probably be unhappy with you for not drawing the walk, and and uh, so uh, this year, though, they've already, they'd already swung, in, swung on 3-0 like five times or something when I'd written that, so there was a clear uptick. Today, Sunday, Jed Lowry uh, swung on 3-0, and hit a home run off Jared Weaver, and Jared Weaver, uh, like almost like stared him down as he was. It, it wasn't clear whether it was just Jared Weaver staring down a guy who hit a home run, which is kind of common, or whether he was specifically like uh, baffled that an that an athletic had swung at three zero and he was shocked, or if it was considered a maybe a breach of unwritten rules because mm-hmm. the A's were winning by three runs. I, that would be a stretch. What inning was it? It was like the sixth, I think. Yeah, that seems like a stretch. There is a that epic length Tim Kirkjian article last week. Did you read that about the yeah. the unwritten rules and yeah, swinging yeah. on three zero is one of them when you're up by at like five runs or so. Three runs seems close enough that no one would be angry. Yeah, I agree. Uh, since I wrote the the piece, which was about two weeks ago, Josh Donaldson has also swung on three zero twice. So this this seems. I mean, they basically have. I don't. They. I don't know what. I don't know what they were really doing when David Forst said three or four a year would be a lot, but if if three or four a year was a lot, then this would obviously be significantly more. Uh, so that's interesting, mm-hmm. and um, and the 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 reaction to Donald uh, to Lowry in particular, I have so far as I can tell, if you never swing on three zero ever ever in your entire career ever, like literally, like Kevin Euclid, for instance, and Bobby Abreu, they actually went like a decade without doing it. And as far as I can tell. There is no difference in the way guys pitch you. That the idea that you're keeping them honest uh, mm-hmm. that seems to be not really true. Um, pitchers basically seem to throw on 3-0 more or less the same, uh, no matter what. They they might be more careful with good hitters, but they won't be more careful with with uh, aggressive hitters. And uh, the the reaction to Lowry's home run though indicates that maybe Weaver. Maybe Weaver, maybe a high, a high, a, an idea for what Weaver might have been thinking was that you weren't supposed to do that. I was banking on you not doing that, and that would seem to indicate that there might be some pitcher response 
the not swinging on three. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, that was a lot of stuff that was mm-hmm. kind of boring. Um, so let's see. Uh, Dale Swain, uh-huh. uh, Royals hitting coach, hitting instructor. Oh, yes, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to rate this on the gaff meter. <laughs> okay. And, and just be, look, just because we're rating something on the gaff meter doesn't mean that it's a gaff. Right. It could be a, it could be a one. Could on the be. Gaff meter. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Is one is one the lowest? Is one no gaff or is, do we have to have a zero? I, I think you could just have just unrated it's not unrated. at all a gaff. Yeah. Uh, well, then that would mean that it's not on the gaff meter. Yes, you're right. Yes. Okay. So we'll determine whether this is one or not. All right. So uh, so Swaim's explanation for why the Royals haven't been hitting uh, is pretty pretty simple. And so this is from Andy McCullough's. Gosh, gotta be kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> Andy McCullough. I was I I was. I told him I was worried about mispronouncing his <laughs> yes, name. Yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't even get close on the first try. <laughs> Andy McCullough mm-hmm. uh, of the Kansas City Star says, As Swaim scanned his new charges, he settled on one root issue. Quote, elevation, he called it. Quote, we've swung at pitches down in the zone way too much, and from thigh high to the top of the strike zone, we're not doing enough damage. Uh, which is probably all true. Mm-hmm. It does have a... A little bit of a we're not hitting because we're not hitting explanation yes, dressed right. up in in fancy words yeah uh, and and a and a really even a catchphrase or or like a, a elevation is I mean it, you know it will, it, all the pitches you want to hit are generally up in the strike zone and all the pitches you don't want to hit are generally down in the zone mm-hmm. way too much it does feel like a bit of an obvious explanation yeah uh, I don't know if that that probably not a gaff though. It's true. It's Probably true. not. Right. I mean, it's what what do we expect him to say about why they're not hitting? What is a good answer to that? I mean, probably that they're I mean, that they're not swinging at good pitches to hit or hittable pitches, if that's the case, is a perfectly fine explanation. Right. It doesn't really say doesn't suggest a solution exactly, except to, to tell people to start swinging at those pitches. But it's it's uh, it's about as good an answer as I would expect. Yeah, uh, I don't know. To me, it's like the scouting report that you see in the first inning of a national TV broadcast. Um, right, you know, a little bit, yeah. But we don't expect him to go into individual hitters' mechanics and <laughs> talk about you know how everyone's front foot isn't getting down in time or something. I mean, you know... When you ask someone something like that, then the answer often is kind of just we're not hitting because we're not hitting. I think uh, I, I think you're right. I think this is a non-gaff, and mm-hmm. uh, I would I would leave it unrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would like a hitting coach. I think if if you're a hitting coach and you have to say something and you're not going to say anything substantive, but you also want to say something that's you know true, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I might just say for any any struggling team that they need to. Uh, make pitchers throw strikes, get into hitters' counts, and do damage mm. in those hitters' counts. I mm-hmm. feel like that's true. That's simple. That's the basic. That's the basic strategy of baseball. It's never not true, and yet it doesn't quite seem so. Uh, like it's not quite. It's not quite literally the definition of hitting in the way that what Swaim said it mm-hmm. almost is. Right. Uh, all right. One last thing. Okay. The pirate. The pirates were on ESPN. Uh, Sunday Night Baseball this week, and uh, this is an update of an article I wrote like three years ago before <laughs> we had a podcast, or you knew who I was. Um, the Pirates, uh, by my by my reckoning, by my uh, exhaustive research, 
had not been on Sunday Night Baseball since 2002. Uh-huh. Uh, it was the longest absence from Sunday Night Baseball of any team uh, in the sport. And mm-hmm. so that, that streak has now snapped. The Pirates, they did it. They played on Sunday night. Cool. I think they would have gotten one one last year at some point. Uh, but they're most, well, those games, the first scheduled two in players advance. were all scheduled in advance. And yeah. So yeah. I, I, double, I did double check to make sure that um, in uh, September there wasn't one, but it doesn't appear that there was one. Okay, and my my update on continuing Effectively Wild Stories, we didn't mention on Friday's show that on Thursday night, Ryan Webb finished a game without a save, which brought him into a tie with Matt Albers, with 83 career games finished without a tie, or without a save. Um, and then the other story, the, uh, the pitchers hustling on batted balls, hustling to beat out base hits story. There was another one of these. This weekend, Jeff Manship uh, suffered some sort of injury, I think quadricep injury, running to first, trying to beat out a grounder. But I'm going to I'm gonna allow this one because this extenuating circumstances, it was the bottom of the 13th inning, and there were two outs, and there was a runner on third. So the, the winning run would have scored if he had beaten out this ball, but he did not, um, and instead he, he had to be removed from the game. But... I will allow in that circumstance. I think Jeff Jeff Manship's well-being was less important than that run scoring, um, and uh, I think it was either the same. Was it the same game or uh, no? It was the game before that that my man Reed Breniak got the walk-off hit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, racked, racked up seven <laughs> plate appearances. Racked up thirteen plate appearances on the weekend for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's bad news. I do not. I'm not rooting for extra innings games. <laughs> Although I have uh, Sean Camp is with the Phillies, right? But he might not be pitching anymore. Uh-huh. I, I assume he's not uh, because yeah, he's he's not. He hasn't. Unfortunately, that would have been a good weekend for him to be in the bullpen. Yes. All right. Uh, all right. Uh, so Phil Hughes mm. is what we're going to talk about. All right. Uh, Phil Hughes, uh, you know, is doing great. He threw eight innings against the Yankees, and it, it's always dangerous to make. Too much of, of uh, you know, especially one start narratives. But you know, I have to admit, I was kind of waiting until he pitched in New York before I really said that you know he had done, he was he was new and improved. Uh-huh. So well, he's, he didn't vow vengeance on the Yankees like Cal Farnsworth. No, but well, yes, I did survive a start in Yankee Stadium without yeah, giving up seven home runs. Yeah, exactly. So he uh, he went eight innings. He struck out six. He walked two. Allowed two runs, lowered his ERA to 3.12. Probably going to be an all-star. Probably, it seems like at this point. And uh, that was his first walk allowed in seven starts uh, Mm. since since April 20th. Uh, He has 56 strikeouts and eight walks. He's a phenom. I mean, he's he's an amazing thing this year. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, there's a couple things that are interesting about this to me. One of which is that you wrote about Phil Hughes' compulsive tinkering Mm -hmm. before... I think before the season started, right? Just before. Yes, the it was in spring training when he announced what his latest change was going to be. And with, with I would say, with a bit of mockery in your voice. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I pointed out that you know he at the he at the time he announced it was like late February. He said he was scrapping his slider. He was going to go with the cutter and his curveball instead. And so I went through sort of the, I called it the 10 phases of Phil Hughes, and I traced 
his pitch usage from year to year, often accompanied by quotes from Phil Hughes explaining why he was making these changes. And he has a long history, really, from the beginning of his time in the majors, actually even before from his his minor league career, of ditching pitches when he feels that they're not working and and picking up new pitches or bringing back old pitches. Um, and so, yeah, I, I sort of I took this latest change to to be more of the same, not necessarily a because when when someone who has no history of this announces that they're making a change, you you think, well, maybe we we've, we've seen in the past the guy adds a new pitch and suddenly he's successful or something. But Phil Hughes is the the pitcher who cried you know, new pitch in that respect and that he's, he's always adding new pitches or going back to old pitches and, and it hasn't really, it hasn't really produced the results for the most part. So I, I dismissed it. Yes. So, um, he said he was ditching the slider going to the cutter and that's what he's done. He ditched the slider. He's going with the cutter and he's not only gone with the cutter, but he's going with the cutter a lot. He's, yeah. he's almost, he's kind of almost ditched the curveball. Too, basically. Yeah, he's, he's basically just slider, cutter, four-seamer now, right? Yeah, and uh, so, first of all, uh, I don't know how much you've paid attention to Phil Hughes since he left your area code, but fair, uh, fair would you expect that this change will take, or uh, are we, you know, th- is it inevitable he's going to have three bad starts, and then before you right. know it, he's going to have three new pitches? Yeah, that that certainly is history that something will be working well and he says this is working well and I'm sticking with it. And then, yeah, he goes through a rough patch and maybe he one of his pitch types gets hit particularly hard or he perceives that it's getting hit particularly hard and he he ditches it. So I would expect that. Yes, if if he has some some sustained struggles, he goes through a rough patch, then Maybe the same thing could happen, but then again, I, I assume that this was not a meaningful change, so maybe he has completely broken the pattern. I mean, it's it, I don't know. I haven't looked, but it's hard to imagine he's had a stretch quite like this one. I mean, he it, I, maybe, there are, maybe there are guys like this happening all the time, and I don't notice it, but I mean, when it, it seems like when you break out the 8-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio, um, you know, for a two-month stretch, that's like probably more legit than all the other things all -hmm. the other good stretches he's had right Mm -hmm. well yeah Yeah. i mean he he did have a very good stretch in 2010 when he was an all-star also that season and on uh what is it june june 2nd on june 2nd in 2010 he had a 2.54 era after uh let's see he had made 10 starts and he had pitched 63 innings, struck out 64 guys, and walked 20. So not not the same sort of elite Cliff Lee kind of control, but he had been very effective over that stretch too. And there was actually a uh, there was an eight start stretch in which he struck out 50 and walked nine, uh-huh. uh, which is closer, which is pretty pretty darn close mm-hmm. to the numbers he has this year. Yep. Uh, so okay, so maybe it's it's nothing. He's throwing. Um, he is throwing a ton of strikes right, that's right now. The thing, and yeah. one of the things that's interesting to me about this, and I don't know if it will stay interesting, and I don't know if he'll keep doing this, and I don't know if he'll stay good uh, if he is, but uh, as we said, he's basically become a fastball cutter guy mm-hmm. uh, at this point. And he's also basically become a throw-the-ball-in-the-strike-zone-every-time guy. He's, yeah. he's basically just pumping strikes in there. Yeah, and he has the I think the what the second highest zone rate in baseball after after Nathan Evaldi I think. 
And so, and maybe the the highest first pitch strike rate, something like that. I think. So it seems like he's basically become a reliever, but he's throwing full starts. Uh-huh. And yeah. I always kind of wonder whether we need to rethink how complicated pitching is and whether, in fact, um, we're going to see more starters who are more like relievers, who are simpler. Because mm. it seems like this is so simple. It, and and the I don't know. It, 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 there's, it feels like maybe people talk themselves into being more complicated than they need to mm-hmm. like it, it it we all know that you need to have a third pitch and we need you need to have a change up and you need to you know work the four quadrants and and all that but like what if you don't i mean <laughs> well I, well he theoretically he could be right i mean i haven't looked at his his strike zone profile but he's throwing all these strikes i guess it's theoretically possible that he's he's not throwing anything down the middle he's just somehow nailing all four corners uh, yeah, I guess. But even still, even if that were the case, it, there's still a, another truism is, you know, like you, you know, you waste a pitch on two strikes, for mm-hmm. instance. And, you know, you getting batters to chase is a big part of pitching. But getting batters to chase is, is often like the biggest part of pitching. Like, like Koji Ohara is the, the great strike thrower of our era, the, the mm-hmm. Dennis Eckersley of our era. But even Koji Ohara, he doesn't actually throw the ball in the strike zone that much he's not he's not near the top of the leaderboard for pitches in the strike zone he just gets guys to chase constantly and that's a big part of pitching as as we all know but maybe that's not either (laughs) maybe it's just as simple as doing what you know if you have a enough of a wrinkle and you throw it hard enough i mean that's kind of what the cutter is i guess Mm -hmm. right it's the pitch that you can throw uh in the strike zone but it, it, it both has movement and it is hard and therefore is is hard to hit yeah, and, and all the other pitches that really kind of only have one or the other, and so you have to get fancy and and trick batters. But the cutter, maybe that's what mm-hmm. makes it kind of great when you can pull it off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and he's he's always had the reputation of a guy who like can't finish hitters off. That's always what people say about him that he he might get ahead of them, but he doesn't have the out pitch. He can't can't finish off the plate appearance. I, I think I looked at the numbers at some point, and I don't remember what I found. But um, this year on on O2, batters are hitting 280 against him. After O2, uh, they're not hitting particularly well. But 519 OPS, that seems like probably a I don't know above the league average. But um, but maybe if you're a guy who doesn't have a devastating O2 pitch or a, a swing and miss swing and miss pitch out pitch. Maybe maybe you are more served by just throwing it in there because you, if you aren't going to get anyone to chase anyway, you're, the pitch isn't going to convince someone to swing at, at a pitch way outside the strike zone, then maybe the best thing to do is just throw it in there while batters are kind of back on their heels because it's 0-2. All right, so one more thing about Phil Hughes. That's a loud one. Yes. Uh, is that... We, I don't remember if you wrote about this or if it was in the transaction analysis or, or what, but I've, I've, it was a fairly common sentiment that he would benefit from being uh, from pitching in Minnesota, yes. from uh, being in a pitcher's park. He's one of the most extreme flyball pitchers uh, in the league, and so you could very easily say that like no stadium in, in the game was maybe less suited mm-hmm. uh, to him than Yankee Stadium, where uh, you know lefties were able to elevate the ball against him and have it carry out. And 
sure enough, if you, I mean, if you look at where he's pitched before this start on um, on Sunday in, in Yankee Stadium, he had six starts in Minnesota, which is a pitcher's park, one in Petco, which is a pitcher's park, one in Kauffman Stadium, which is a pitcher's park, one in Comerica, which is a pitcher's park, and or one at in least, U.S. At least non non home run yeah, parks. Yeah, they're all pitcher's parks if they're not home run parks in my Ka- opinion. Kauffman's kind of neutral, right? Uh, not if you ask uh, Dave Moore. <laughs> no, right. It's impossible to hit home runs <laughs> or right. draw walks. Yes. Because it's so hard to hit home runs. Because mm-hmm. you can't hit home runs, you can't draw walks, yep. according to Dave Moore. Uh, and then uh, once in uh, U.S. Cellular, um, which is not a pitch, which is a hitter's park, and that was one of his worst starts uh, of the year, and he allowed half the home runs he's allowed this year were in that start. Um, and so um, I, I guess I always wondered when... I particularly wondered it when Hughes signed with Minnesota and it made so much sense. Um, why guys aren't constantly going to parks yeah. that suit them? And why, even more than that, why guys aren't constantly being traded around the league to parks where they're better? Because it's not mm. just that, I mean, every pitcher's better in, in target field than at Yankee Stadium. But Hughes has a particular skill set where he would benefit more than most. And so it just feels like he's probably you know, a win better to the Twins, mm-hmm. a win more valuable to the Twins than he ever could have been to the Yankees. And you have to wonder why baseball can't kind of work out this inefficiency and get everybody in situations where they're they're going to thrive. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, I, first off, I'm just noting that he's pitching a lot of really good pitchers' parks, and so that mm-hmm. might be one reason that he'll uh, regress and then be tinkering again in a month. But um, why do you think that it's conceivable that a team would would have a guy like phil hughes who is 22 and say well he's great he's perfect but he's just you know he's never going to thrive in our park quite like he can in another and, and trade or is this mm. just always going to be too risk averse uh, yeah i bet i i bet if, if we thought about it and did some research we could find some sort of example like that maybe someone listening is thinking of some something but yeah i mean if you're if you're the Yankees and Hughes was like the, the great hope of your farm system, which has not produced much in recent years, and he was one of the top prospects in baseball, it's kind of hard for you probably to to give up on that or to accept that that maybe he's worth more to another team, even though he could be potentially worth a lot to your team. And and you've got all the all your fans who get attached to him. Oh, he's homegrown Phil Hughes. And I mean, I, I was aware of Phil Hughes for years before he was actually on the Yankees looking at his minor league stats and getting excited about him coming up. And, and, and when you draft a guy and maybe you have the, the scout who's still in your organization who, who recommended that you sign him and signed him and you invest all this money into developing him and you get attached to him personally and, and he's yours, you know, he's your prospect. You found him and drafted him and developed him. Then it's kind of hard to to give him up. To that, That's probably part of the reason why we don't see more prospect for prospect trades. It's hard to it's hard to give up on on a guy like that. Probably that's that's it's uh, you're attached. Right. So it's kind of hard to give him up just to look at it coldly and intellectually and say he's not the best fit for our park. This other guy would be a better fit. Maybe we could help each other out. Um, but but you're right. It probably should happen more often than it does. It's weird. There's this weird incentive where if you're a GM, you almost want to trade a guy to a situation where he's going to fail. Because yeah. if, if you trade him to a situation where he flourishes, 
then you look like an idiot. And right. and most of the public isn't going to do that park effect math or whatever and figure out, oh, well, you know, that's because he's in Minnesota. They're just going to assume that he would have flourished anywhere that he would have gone. And so you actually kind of like, if you can, you'd like to trade him to a place where he's going to actually do even worse than he was doing with you. Uh-huh. And then you look like a genius. And I don't know how much that, I don't know how much that factors into the subconscious or conscious decisions that G- GMs make. Mm. Um, but maybe, maybe you can't, maybe you feel like you can't get full value for him if he's been underperforming in your park. You can't, maybe you can't make the argument to the other team that, oh, he's, he's going to be much better for you. If he had been with you the whole time, he'd be much better. They're going to, they're going to give up whatever it looks like he was worth based on his actual numbers, maybe. Um, so maybe it's hard to fully leverage that that ballpark fit. So I was thinking about this also with Oscar Tavares this weekend because you hear all the time now about how teams overrate prospects and how uh, it's so hard to 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 trade your your you know your veterans on deadline because uh, nobody wants to give up their prospects anymore. They all have this like sort of obsessive uh, uh, attachment to their own prospects, and I don't know maybe the their own is the key there. Maybe that it only works if it's their own prospects. Mm-hmm. But I was, I mean, it does seem like the, if, if you were a really smart team and, and you were, you know, like the Cardinals and prospects in general had become overvalued that you should think about trading Tavares, mm-hmm. even though, you know, obviously he's going to have tremendous value and he's going to be, um, you know, underpaid and a potential superstar for, you know, for the next six years. But every other team in baseball is able to do that math, too. They also know that he's going to be underpaid and a superstar for the next six years. And presumably they would give you that sort of value in return for him. And, you know, the Cardinals arguably need Tavares less than other teams because they have a lot of depth, almost a problematic amount of depth uh, in their outfield and in the corners. So, um, so, uh, but this seems like another situation where the, the efficiency for like the great, the whole system, the whole system's efficiency of getting all of the players in the best situation for them to thrive. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it's not really ever in any, I don't, maybe it's just not in any individual team's benefit. Mm-hmm. Like it, it looks nice to, to us when right. everything goes perfectly and efficiently, uh-huh. but to the team, it's just too, it's just too, too much of a gamble for not enough gain, I yeah. guess. Mm-hmm. The RJ Anderson's piece about the A's and how the yeah. A's, uh, traded from a very good farm system to even when they when they should have been rebuilding mm-hmm. and they traded a lot of their prospects and that's why they're where they are today made me wonder whether Billy Bean was sort of thinking that exact same thing because Bean has, com- has complained a lot over the last few years about how hard it is to get prospects mm-hmm. uh, or to you know to get prospects for your veterans and how now you have to trade a guy with three years of service time if you expect to get anything good back um for just that reason, so maybe Billy Bean was just figured out. Well, hey, if I can't get prospects, then the market must be crazy. I ought to be selling prospects. Mm-hmm. And there was a story a few days ago about the Cardinals' outfield depth and how maybe they will start thinking about selling. There was a quote from John Mazalak who said, "When you look at depth in baseball, it's a good problem to have, but I think we're starting to get to the point where it might become a problem. So even though it's a nice thing to have true depth in your system, at some point you've got to be able to play the depth." So that was related to to promoting Tavares, but also to possibly trading some of their surplus. 
But I think uh, I think you're. It's an interesting point about why players don't don't seek out these friendly environments themselves more often. And and yeah, I, I wrote about how I thought Phil Hughes was a good signing by the Twins, both the terms and the fit for the park. And and a lot of people said the same thing. And and all of us were kind of looking at the fact that he had been more or less league average away from Yankee Stadium, and that as a extreme fly ball guy, you'd want him in a fly ball park. And and that's turned out to be the case, even though he's made this change to his his pitching arsenal and and he's throwing more strikes. He's still giving up tons of fly balls. They're just not leaving the park as much. So that that part at least is as people thought, not so much the extreme control. Um, but he he's also uh, I read a, an interview with him that Brandon Warren did a couple of days ago, and and he said something about how the control just comes from his mechanics and they. They didn't make much. They didn't make many changes to his mechanics, but for whatever reason, he just feels very comfortable and fluid, and everything is working well right now. He also said, "I wanted to go somewhere I felt would be a good fit, both personally and with baseball. I felt like the Twins and Target Field kind of met every met every need and thing on the checklist." So he at least had this in mind, presumably it seems like. And and there was a quote from him earlier this year about how just the Twins clubhouse feels so relaxed to him after coming from Yankees from the Yankees where there's so much media and attention and scrutiny so it's possible that just temperamentally he's he's better suited for a more laid-back atmosphere or smaller media market um less less of a spotlight on every single move but it, it seems like he he had the ballpark thing in his mind also and you'd you'd think that if a player wasn't aware of that himself at least his agent would be that'd be you know his number one number one move if you're an agent and you're giving your player advice on where he should go as as a free agent then you'd think that a good agent would certainly factor that into the recommendation because ultimately it's going to mean more money down the road yep all right okay so that's it for today Please support our sponsor, Baseball Reference. Go to baseballreference.com, subscribe to the Play Index using the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. And please start sending us emails for this Wednesday's listener email show at podcast at baseballperspectives.com. We will be back tomorrow.